My first guest has had a career which could come straight out of a Damien Lewis novel. Barry Rice was a career soldier. He joined the elite New Zealand SAS, then left the forces to take up lucrative private security work on what soldiers call the circuit. Then in 2003, America invaded Iraq. Now, this highly skilled Kiwi soldier soon found himself right in the middle of it, seeing more action in the following seven years than his entire career, and he has the PTSD to show for it. While working as a military advisor on the films The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, he was told by the filmmakers that he needed to get his story down. His book is called We Were Blackwater, and he's already in talks with Guy Ritchie to turn it into a TV series. I spoke to him earlier in the week and started by asking him about his background. I come from Gisborne, um, but I always had in my mind I was never going to live in New Zealand, even as a, at a young age. And I was looking at ways of how I could leave New Zealand. And back in the 80s, it was, it was quite difficult because they were expensive and most people sort of went to either Australia or, or the UK. And I sort of looked at joining the army as my, my ticket to get out of New Zealand and have a look around and not really have to worry about paying for the ticket myself. Okay. So you got into the army, then you moved into the SAS. Now, that's no no easy feat in itself. How would you describe your time with the unit? Uh, it's, it's life-changing. It's anyone who's ever been in it, uh, it's, it's probably the highlight of your life. And you recall it and... and as you get older, it's still very fond memories and, and, and sort of front and centre to your memories. It, it, it's also a very fantastic foot in the door for anything else that you do in the security industry. You just mentioned, or, you know, SAS and that uh, opens doors. It's probably the pinnacle of the spear, the point, you know, the tip of the spear as far as uh, being in the military is concerned, I believe. And, and there's something about New Zealand soldiers too, and especially if you're in the SAS, you guys have an incredible reputation. Why is that? Uh, I think we like to think we're, uh, we're, we're pretty self-reliant. Um, we can make do in, in pretty rugged situations and uh, we're, we're very positive at, at finding a solution for a problem. We have a lot of pride in, uh, in being in there. It's, it's difficult to get in there. So we work very hard to stay in there and to, to keep the reputation up. Um, and I think it's also, you know, I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm part Maori, sort of. I think we have a very, very uh, strong fighting spirit already. And, and um, I, yeah, I think it's it's a pride thing. And we, we like to think that we can stand amongst all these other special forces units and, and be right at the top with them. Yeah, and and I suppose the culture of New Zealand and and particularly our military, it it's a real hearts and minds program. They go into a country without trying to, well, from from what I know anyway, dominate. Um, you know, no, we have, we have a very very good hearts and mind program, and and uh, we, I think also being um, tribal, we like to treat people how we want to be treated, and we actually instead of just saying you know that's how we want to do things hearts and minds, we actually practice it. So, okay, you know, you, you talk about the joy and the, you know, the pride of being in the SAS. Uh, why did you leave? Uh, I left after 10 years of being in the military. Um, I, I, was, I got a bit sick. Also, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard on the body. Um, also, we were, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, we were a very peacetime army. And I couldn't really see that we were going to be um, being deployed anywhere under the government that we had. Uh, and I wanted to get out while I was still functioning and try and apply the skills that I had learned into Civvy Street. And um, like, you know, most guys in the unit or whoever who get out, 
you know, get paid accordingly. And again, being in New Zealand wasn't going to um, allow that. So it was a mixture of, okay, we're not going to go anywhere as far as I can see with the political situation around us and the government that we have. And my body's going to be, you know, worse than what it is now in another 10 years time if I do a full 20 years. So I'm going to try and get out and apply the skills that I have uh, somewhere else. And so what, where did you go and, and how did you use those skills? Uh, well, originally finding work in New Zealand coming out of the unit is, is difficult. Uh, you're dealing with civilians who basically have no idea in a very low pay system. Uh, so I went to uh, originally Brunei. Um, I got a job over there and then uh, all through Southeast Asia uh, doing close protection, uh, specialist military training, uh, weapons training, hand-to-hand combat. Uh, wherever I could find a contract, actually, that was, uh, I would go. You know, I, I did that right up until around about 2003. So 2003, of course, is, is you know, when the Iraq uh, war began. What made you decide to go there? Money. Uh, money and the ability to use my skills, but primarily money. I mean, I, even though I was working overseas, it was still... I was making better money than I'd make in New Zealand, but I wasn't making money that was really going to take me forward. And um, the first contract, that, well, the first company that I was able to go over to were offering 200 US dollars a day, which back then um, there's a lot of money, was a lot of money. So I jumped at the chance. And also, you know, it was, a, it was a conflict zone coming out of a peacetime army. You know, you think this is an ability to use my skills properly. So this is exactly what I wanted when I got out. So this is the golden opportunity for me to go and use them. I'm, I'm getting the money I think I deserve. And I'm, I'm using the skills that I've learned, I think, in a, in a way that's, that's going to test that what I was doing worked. So it was 200 bucks a day, 200 US dollars a day. Uh, yeah. And it was a company called Custer Battles. What were you expecting and what did they deliver or not? I expected that the, the caliber of the, people, of, the, of the person who would be joining Custer Battles would be of similar background to myself, the tier one, tier two soldiers who had done close protection or special forces work, HRT, hostage, hostage rescue and, and the police force SWAT teams and whatever. But um, when we first arrived in Amman, Jordan, it seemed it was just a mishmash of um, whoever they could get their hands on. Most of them had military and police backgrounds, but it was it was a mix of, say, patrol policemen or basic uh, infantry, which, which is not a problem. Um, as far as the military side goes, but as far as the policing side goes, I couldn't really see how those skills could be applied uh, doing close protection or the work I was I thought we were going to be doing in Iraq. So initially, that was my first sort of shock. Um, however, you know, being that typical soldier, you just crack on and get on with it. And then when we went into inter-country, uh, the equipment was, was quite an eye-opener. It was these, you know... AK-47s that they must have dug up from some cave somewhere. There was no body armor, soft skin vehicles. That was another shock. So there was two shocks straight out of the gate. And I sort of thought to myself, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here and I'm grateful to be earning money and, and use my skills. But, uh, you know, if this thing goes into anything more than just sort of, you know, if it goes into heavy conflict or these actual shootings, I think we're going to be in a bit of trouble with the equipment that we have. Well, I mean, a bit of trouble is, is actually you could get killed. I mean, you're, you're understating it a bit yeah. there, Barry. You're in a war zone with, with people who are inexperienced. Uh, and... Well, a, a bullet in the head can leave you in a bit of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just a little, yeah. So, so at, at any stage, did you think, OK, did you, you want to cut your losses and get out of there? Or, or what was keeping you there? 
I wasn't the only one thinking that. You know, the guys that I had met in, in Amman, Jordan, there was a there was a little group of us of about four. We called ourselves, you know, the four amigos, the three other Americans, and I gelled with pretty quickly. And we all came to the same conclusion that, uh, you know, perhaps the commitment that Custer Battles were putting into us wasn't quite what we were we were expecting. And um, you know, luckily enough, there was a, a another older guy there. Well, you know, a little bit older than myself, and uh, he was a former SEAL Team Six guy, and he could see. He had the same issues that we did, so he was able to reach out to, um, you know, to Blackwater, who is a predominantly Navy SEAL company, and uh, convince them that there was an opportunity to make some more money on the commercial side. And he had some guys who were willing to jump ship and uh, come over and start this if they were they were willing to put some backing behind us, and um, you know we could start making money on the on the commercial side, which was something that Blackwater at that time hadn't ventured into. So when you talk about Blackwater uh, commercial, so generally Blackwater were there uh, working for the US, really protecting their people. What, yeah. what was Black, Blackwater commercial doing? As as the rebuilding process became clearer, they opened up contracts for uh, for different companies to provide protection and security for the building of different infrastructures, that being water, electricity, and also gearing up for the new um, first democratic elections in Iraq. Um, in brackets. Uh, so looking after those people. Now, Blackwater Commercial could also bid for those contracts because they didn't require uh, American clearances through the State Department, which the state, well, the, uh, the other contracts that Blackwater were doing at the time did. So, so and, and actually just to put a, a little bit of perspective around it, I think uh, I was reading a, a census back in the Washington Post in December 2006, where it estimated up to 75,000 civilians, so that's not including those working in security, were involved in the reconstruction of Iraq. So a lot of people to protect, uh, and they had to rely on on people like yourself to, to keep them safe. In your book, We Were Blackwater, you talk about a lot of the runs you did and you know how dangerous they were. Can you just paint us a bit of a picture and tell us a little bit about some of the work that you did do and the dangers that you faced? Yeah, no problem. The uh, well, at the beginning, it was it wasn't that dangerous. We didn't, you know, it didn't really seem to be that dangerous. Because, and it wasn't until the CPA were involved with talks and discussions with the former members of the military and the police and and everything out there to try and bring them into the fold to help run Iraq. And when those meetings broke down, uh, the the signal was basically given to form a uh, resistance and an, an insurgency. So immediately things started to escalate. So we could be driving around, uh, keeping our wits about us and looking out because um, a lot of gangs and criminals, because all the prisons got opened up, were, were running around. But then when the talks broke down about cooperation to, to keep Iraq peaceful, the military, former military people started taking up arms against the U.S. and anyone deemed to be helping the U.S. and, you know, the people doing the infrastructure construction and, and ourselves. So there were there were more drive-by shootings. There were more uh, sniper attacks. There were, there immediately the, the threat level went up. So it went from being somewhat manageable, which has got to keep our wits about us, to, okay, now everywhere we go, uh, we've got to watch out for for ambushes. We were actually here. It's it's now got real, and we've got to really open our eyes and keep our heads on a swivel, and get our uh, start using the tactics, and not just uh, hope we can get through or just blase get through the day. So if I didn't have too much of a trouble because I uh, of a problem because I treated it like it was a a military mission from from every run. Even up up to that point, 
it didn't really feel that sort of warlike, that much tension. And that, that didn't sort of uh, change until um, Fallujah. You know, and that's when, when things really wrapped up. I'm speaking with SAS, former SAS veteran and Blackwater contractor Barry Rice. His book is called We Were Blackwater. Let's talk about that incident. And, and I think a lot of people will remember back then when the images of, of four Blackwater contractors were killed. You know, they were ambushed by insurgents. They were killed and hung up and burned for the whole world to see. They, those images were spread around the world. I still remember it. How did it unfold for you? Uh, well, that morning I was in uh, the team house in Baghdad in the, in the, in the IZ and the CPA, getting the, well, the green zone. And I was at my desk and uh, we had our housekeeper. The TV was on and uh, she let out this horrendous scream. And um, called out to me, actually. Yeah, I ran into the TV room to see what she was screaming at. And on the TV was the images of the vehicles burning and um, the, the crowd going crazy, throwing rocks and everything at these charred bodies inside the vehicle. And uh, she recognized what was happening straight away. And we had had a team out uh, who were meant to be going to Najaf, uh, sorry, not the uh, Taji Air Base. And it was meant to be there. And once they got there, they could be retasked to do something or they'd be coming back to the team house. Um, so uh, I'm looking at these vehicles burning and I, I thought I recognised, you know, the shape of them and the trim in them. And it was horrendous what these what these people were doing to them. And then after a while, it really dawned on me when they went and uh, the camera went and scanned the second vehicle that it was exact. It was the vehicles that we had, um, these Mitsubishi Pacheros. And the, the charred dead bodies were, were our guys that we had lost contact with. And it was just the whole feeling of um, sort of everything changed. And to me, I felt like we had sort of like been betrayed to a degree. We were there to help. And uh, this is what you've done to our guys. And this is what, you know, the anger you've unleashed on them. And uh, for me personally, I, um, and I wasn't the only one. By that time, there was, you know, other guys in the TV room. You know, we, I basically thought, all right, then, you know, the gloves are off. If this is what, how you want to treat us, then we're going to treat you the exact same way if the opportunity comes our way. I mean, where before we may have been this, uh, you know, a benefit of the doubt, no no longer will there be the benefit of the doubt. If you have a weapon and it comes anywhere near looking like if you have a weapon, we're not even going to wait. You know, we're going to get you before you get us. So that's when it all changed, and not just for us, for everybody. For everybody, it was like, okay, let's stop mucking around now. This is serious. Um, they have shown you know, no humanity. Uh, so why, why, why should we? You do throughout the book. You question the morality of war. You question, you know, the invasion of Iraq. There was a moment also. In fact, there there are so many moments within the book where, where you did question, you know, what what was happening in Iraq and how it was unfolding. Can you remember? And apart from that incident, which was a big, there was another incident before that, uh, which you describe in the book, and it it involves a small child. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, before that, before the Fluja incident, we would be coming in. Uh, we were living in the red zone, so outside of the IZ in a, in a hotel. And um, we'd come in sometimes in the evening uh, just on, and we'd unpack the vehicles. We'd had a big day uh, running the streets. And there was this young boy who was um, in amongst this wrecked building. And I always thought it was a, a car park that had been hit with a JDAM or a bomb or something rather. And he always reminded me of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He was completely filthy. He was jittery. 
Um, he scampered out of the wreck of, of the building and then, you know, he wouldn't come anywhere near us and would leave food down beside him and then he'd scamper back in into the uh, into the building. And uh, and I asked the guard one, one time, I said, why is that kid always going in and out of that um, bombed out car park? Because it was all pancaked, all the floors were pancaked together, so to me it looked like a bit of a car park. And he said in his uh, in sort of broken English, he goes, oh, no, no, that's not a car park. That was his apartment building. And uh, during the first moments of the invasion, they got hit with a bomb. And everybody in there is dead. And his family were in there. And uh, he keeps going in and out, waiting for his family to come in and out. You know, this one night I saw him eating what I thought was a loaf of bread. And then I got closer after he scampered off. And on the ground was a pile of feathers from a dead pigeon a dead tried pigeon that he had been eating and sort of living off that. And he was gone. You could see that he had PTSD. He was he was not there anymore. He was scampering in and out, waiting for his family who would never come out of that that uh, that wreckage because they were all dead. And it just sort of dawned on me, like, you know, this is obscene. You know, because I knew from the get-go, as I think anybody who knew that the whole war was, was an illegal invasion and, and wasn't what they tried to sell it to be. But... Um, you know, seeing seeing that kid, and I still see it. And then, um, you know, that was a sort of image. And, and, and when I used to come home to see my children, and we'd go to restaurants or we'd go out, and, and my, my boys who were about the same age, you know, they'd be mucking around, choosing what they wanted from uh, from the menu, this, this, and that. And this, this young boy would come into my head, and that would cause me to lose. I'd snap, and I'd snap at my kids because, you know, and I'd be, I'd be at them, you know, there were kids who didn't have the choices that you had to hurry up and blah, blah, blah. And I, I brought it home with me. I brought that part of the uh, of the trauma that, you know, of what this kid was going through back to me, back to New Zealand when, I was, when I'd come back on a rotation. And I really, my, my boys were scared of me. I brought it home. Well, I shouldn't have, but I did. And I didn't even realise that I was doing it. And, and it just really played on my mind. At any stage, when you think about that, I mean, did you... Did you ever think that maybe you were profiteering from from other people's misery? You know, it was time to leave. That you know, did you question why you were there and why you stayed there? Yeah, of course. As time went on, I did. Um, am I profiteering and making my living on the on the backs of the Iraqi people? Uh, the answer to me was yes. Uh, would I stop doing it? No. Um, as as morally bad as it sounds, I also had to make a living for my family. And this was the only way I was going to be able to do it. Um, I didn't start the war. Uh, I didn't bomb the freshwater facilities. I didn't bomb the electrical facilities. You know, that bombing those was made legal by people in the State Department when, in fact, it's a war crime. Uh, but I was making very good money. Um, I was doing what I would believe I was trained to do. I was putting my skills to work. Uh, I wasn't doing anything uh, illegal or uh, unjustifiable, so um, I could deal with with the morality of it that way. But was I making money off them, uh, off the fact that we were there, uh, part of the illegal invasion? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. Mm. There's another moment uh, that you tell us about, and um, you know your job is close protection. You were there to do a job. Uh, and ultimately, it's about conflict avoidance. You know, getting a client safely from from A to B. Um, you, there were so many close calls, which could have ended 
and you and your team getting killed if it wasn't for your skills and your expertise and, and I think your intuition. You talk about uh, your intuition a lot. Um, c- can you tell us about that moment, though, that, that, that first time when it was a case of, of kill or be killed? How did that unfold? Uh, yeah, we were, I was doing, um, doing four-man security in uh, Kabbalah, which is, you know, just out. Uh, and we, were, we went on an unscheduled meeting with the client, uh, and we had this feeling that uh, the client was trying to work against us, um, which, which is better described in the book. Anyway, so one of the other guys and I decided to clear around the building where this meeting was taking place, and it was dark. But at that time of the year, we get a lot of uh, dust storms, sandstorms, and um, so we had to cover up and, and walk carefully soon. But myself and this other guy are walking as this dust storm sort of uh, starts to come in, you know, and it gives it that whole <laughs> the whole Hollywood sort of like airy picture and all that sort of carry on. Everything's turning red and golden. Um, as we're about to go around this corner, and we're being very covert, we were, we were basically patrolling, and it was. It was very military-like, which was which was quite funny. Um, I got a smell of cigarette uh, smoke, and anybody knows, you know, it's quite a noticeable smell. You know, if, if you don't smoke uh, cigarettes and you smell it. But what happened was it was behind us, an area that we thought we had already cleared. Um, uh, so we came up with an immediate action drill to turn around and go back. The other guy had, because uh, we had been issued suppressors, um, or wrongfully, <laughs> we had got hold of the suppressors. They weren't meant for us, but we got them anyway. Um, and he had one on his weapon. And um, and night vision, he had also scored a set of night vision. And I didn't. I had a, an MP5, A3, um, unsuppressed, but um, hollow point rounds, subsonic hollow point rounds, uh, which reduces the noise somewhat. Um, and uh, I was... I went across the other side into the into the shadows and I was walking down and then uh, I could smell the cigarette smoke again and then I heard the unmistakable sound of an AK-47 being wrecked um, and a car door being closed. Um, and it was just above me by about maybe three to four metres. So I froze and then uh, my adrenaline started to kick in and my knees started to shake and I was, <laughs> I was, I was making these really unprofessional sort of noise from my pants. And I was, I was going, this is not how you read about it in the books, but guys take on the other guys, you know, it's all going ho, and here I am with my legs shaking like Elvis. <laughs> and I'm really nervous. And I was thinking, oh, I've got to get a grip of this. And then uh, just over the radio, my, my cohort on the other side is saying he can see them through his night vision. And all of a sudden, I hear this, you know, whack, he, he fires, and it sort of, came past me very closely, and then um, I heard the sound of it, of someone dropping. Um, and then he tells me, you know, directly in front of me, everything for me was pitch black, you got to recall, remember, well, and, and reddish, and um, so I just let off six rounds of double tap, which is how we practice in the unit, sort of bang, 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 at, at where he directed me to shoot. And then uh, I heard the sound of, yeah, someone getting who had been hit, hitting the ground and uh, sort of the unescapable, you know, you know, noise of someone dying. Then I moved off to the side just in case there was more and uh, there was going to be a shot fired back. And of course, now my, my knee's really shaking, you know, and I'm dealing with the adrenaline and everything else again. 
uh, and then we went up and we cleared the area because we wanted to make sure there weren't more people up there. Um, so we, we checked the vehicle and um, we came around the side and these two guys are dead. They're, they're laying on, on the ground and we opened up the vehicle and inside the trunk was an AT-4, which is a uh, military, the US military um, rocket launcher, some body armor of a soldier, a uh, US soldier, because it still had his name tag on it and blood all over it, and uh, M4 magazines uh, for, you know, so these guys, would, as far as we were concerned, were definitely bad guys because they, they had, you know, the equipment from a dead American soldier. That was that encounter. You know, it was definitely a case of why were they there? What was their intention? We had a meeting going on. It could only be bad. So we got to them before they got to us. Um, you know, and there were different situations later on where, you know, we would sometimes have to shoot first if we're driving down the road just in order to take somebody's mind off perhaps having a go at us, change their minds and sort of, uh, you know, but that was the first incident uh, of, of that. And it was, again, a culmination of training and, and putting it into practice. You know, and, and everything worked out, um, including the the not so glorious. You don't read about in other books, sort of like dealing with the adrenaline and um, what the body does when it starts to flow for you. I'm speaking with Barry Rice. Uh, his book is "We Were Blackwater." Barry, I suppose there's a there's been a lot of talk about the 2007 uh, now infamous uh, Nissau Square massacre. Uh, Blackwater contractors escorting a U.S. embassy convoy. They shot at Iraqi civilians, uh, killing 17, injuring 20. What can you remember of that incident? Um, well, at the time, I I mean, we were the, the state. We used to see the State Department contract guys go all the time. You know, they were. They had the Humvees, 50 cows, gunned up to the to the nines, little bird helicopters that we had with Blackwater escorting them. Um, uh, you know, we just, you know, they, they got into a, a shootout at Nasir Square or Circle, which was a very common because, I mean, I'd been in a shootout there and many others have been in a shootout. There was always something happening there. Um, but when we heard about... Uh, the guys who were involved, the immediate reaction was, okay, yeah, they went out there and um, when the incident happened or when the firefight started, they were just shooting indiscriminately at anybody and, and everything. That was the initial uh, story that we got back and that some of the team commanders basically had to draw their weapons on their own guys in order to get them to stop. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a, a mess. Um, but... You know, that was the initial story. But as, as the story started to come back to us and the incident uh, was told by those who were on the ground, um, they got into a shootout. They were getting fired back upon. Um, it wasn't anywhere near as big as what uh, was told in the press or the media. Um, and there was one guy, yes, who was who was um, out of control. But he got reined in pretty quickly. Um, now, when... The investigation took place because by that stage, you got to remember, Blackwater were, were not the flavour of the month. Everybody was just uh, crapping on us, you know, as much as they could. Um, and a lot of that, uh, I'm pretty sure, was professional jealousy. We had all the equipment by that stage. Um, a lot of companies were, were upset that Blackwater was making all the big money and perhaps they weren't. Um, 
The investigation didn't take place until three weeks after the incident by the DOJ, Department of Justice, okay? Also, at that time, the Iraqis were paid 10,000 US dollars per person who had been killed accidentally or whatever by the military or by State Department, okay? Um, when they did the investigation, okay, which was flawed, it was three weeks later, it was, they were, they were there to, to find people to hang out to dry. That's, there was, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, and they did, they, they found these, these four guys. Um, the one person they used for testimony was the one guy who was out of control. He made it, he got a deal uh, for immunity. So they used him, he fingered these other four individuals and they got locked away uh, for you know, insane amounts of years in, in, in military prison uh, or federal prison. Which was which was completely wrong, um, and and I say that now because I watched I watched a really good podcast with the four guys um, by a guy called Sean Ryan, his podcast, and he talks to them directly, and they lay out everything that happened, and my opinion then changed. Okay, yeah, having known what the DOJ is like, having known what the anti-sentiment about Blackwater was like, I can exactly see what was happening. It played exactly into the hands of the Iraqis who were. Who were wanting Blackwater out and contractors out? Um, you know they were also getting paid a lot of money for for deaths that may or may not have happened. Um, it was the final straw, and and because Blackwater had always been in the in the headlines as doing everything bad over there, it was like the final it was the death knell for Blackwater in Iraq and and a lot of other security contractors, but particularly us. Mm. Um, and of course, yeah. I think it was in uh, 2020, President Trump uh, he controversially pardoned them. But but that, this is one of the reasons why you've written the book, isn't it, Barry? To, to kind of set the record straight about Blackwater. We were the low-hanging fruit. You know, when everything went bad, it was Blackwater. And I, I believe a lot of that was professional jealousy from other companies. We rolled hard. There's no doubt about it. And we, and we don't make any excuses for it. If we were coming through, you got out of our way. We never lost a client. We lost many uh, of our own guys in some pretty horrific ways, you know, and, and Fallujah being one of them. But we saved a lot of clients in some, you know, some huge battles, you know, Najaf being one of them. Um, you know, Ramadi was another one. Uh, and we say we worked with the military, but um, there was a lot of jealousy. And because we were making so much money and Eric Prince wasn't exactly shy of, of being in the media, um, we became the sort of like the scapegoat for everybody else. But we had a very good reputation as far as doing what we were there to do goes. You know, I, I, I was in, I was running this contract out in uh, Kabbalah, uh, um, just out of the IZ. And this uh, Australian registered company came up to our gate and asked our gate guards if they could hide out in our compound for a little bit. So he, our guy calls me up and I go out there and I said, yeah, what's going on? He says, oh, we just shot up this, uh, this local down on Biop, which was the road between the, the CPA and the airport. And I says, oh, yeah, so, you know, well, what do you want to do? And he says, oh, we, we told them we were Blackwater, so that way we could get out of there and hide. And I went, oh, right, really? Um, so then I had to call the, uh, the team house and let them know what had just, just happened, who could call the State Department and say, okay, well, it wasn't us. You know, and this and and this is if, if one company is doing it, you know, other companies are doing it as well. So uh, it did happen. Did you say they um, were Australians? 
Well, Australian registered company. Well, Australian registered uh, company, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah it, there was all sorts of it. Uh, I just want to um, just digress a little bit, talking about Australia. Uh, can I ask you, as a former, as a former SAS soldier, but but also someone who's who served, obviously in in Iraq and conflict zones, um, the Ben Robert Smith, you know, Australia's most decorated living soldier. Yeah. You know, he was he was found to be complicit in and responsible for murder of three Afghan men while on deployment. How does this sort of thing happen? Yeah, yeah, that's commonly known as the greatest own goal in Australian history, mm. <laughs> suing the uh, the media and, and, and losing like that. How that happens exactly, yeah. is complacency. Um, and how did uh, he get away with it? Lack of, lack of, sorry, lack of accountability. Okay, he was he was a big imposing guy and he had a bit of a reputation and there, was, there were newer guys. Um, there was also a... You know, a bit of a, a brotherhood of secrecy amongst this group. And if you wanted to be with one of the cool boys like himself, you know, you, you had to be blooded into their, their group, which meant killing somebody. And it was, you know, completely illegal and obscene. Um, you know, and and he did this for the many years that he was going with you. And if I can so, sort of like tie this into something like that I've just sort of thought of, you know, it's it sort of, it's the same with the gangs, the gang problems in New Zealand. They, they Ben Roberts did it in Australia, and I think the gangs are doing this. There's no accountability. They're not scared of the consequences because there because there are none, you know. So they're going to keep on doing it, and, and until someone called him out, which his fellow soldiers did, Ben Roberts in that case, and 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 took him to court. And it wasn't until he sued, he basically, which is why it's called the you know the greatest own goal. Um, he got caught and, and, and caught out. But if there's no accountability, there's no leadership from his officers, there's no accountability, there's no consequences of actions. And that's what had happened. So that's why he continued to do it. And uh, he thought he could continue to do it. And again, that's how I believe the gang problem in New Zealand is exactly the same, because there's no accountability, there's no consequences to actions. They're not scared of whatever penalties come along because they're, they're minimal and they'll keep on doing it, you know, and then until there's a reckoning with them, uh, as there was for Ben Roberts, I mean, they're going to keep on doing it. Okay, getting back to your book, thank you for those thoughts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Damien Lewis, he said um, it's about the brotherhood of warriors and their descent into hell. When did it all descend into hell with you, and why did you decide to leave? I... Decided to leave when, okay, so after we finished each day on our runs, we'd have a beer or two uh, to celebrate passing through, you know, making it through another day. You know, and we'd get guys who would come in, sit down, they'd have a beer with us, and then the next day or the next few days that they did, uh, we'd have guys, you know, I, I brought a friend over from uh, another company, Custer Battles, as a matter of fact, and I wrote it in the book. An Australian guy, and um, you know he went home and shot himself. And alcohol was starting to play a bigger and bigger part in my day, just a daily function uh, for me. Um, I, I, I instead of doing a three-month tour, I, was, I did a seven-month tour. We were far too long for what we were doing. Um, you know, five-month tour, uh, and alcohol became. I became a little bit more dependent on it. And, and when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd have horrible hangovers. And 
I would I was losing my caution. If you understand, I would I would not fear getting into into conflicts or into firefights. In fact, I would sometimes be looking for them, um, and this was very unhealthy. And uh, and I was eating guys as well, so I was you know I'm not on the road with my guys. Uh, my 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 drinking became too much and out of hand, and I needed it in order to get to sleep, and I needed it in order to sort of not think about things, and also. Uh, the sounds of guns, the sounds of explosions, the sounds of jets flying over and, and helicopters flying over became very peaceful for me. It's what sent me to sleep. When I'd come home for a rotation, um, the silence would keep me awake. I couldn't stay awake, so I, I'd, I'd drink again and I'd be able to sleep. But I wasn't, it wasn't fixing the problem. It was merely just putting a, a dirty old Band-Aid on it until it became... Uh, something that I was relying on far too much and it was being far too destructive for me. So uh, that's why I left. Um, I'd had enough of the Middle East. I kind of thought if I stick around much longer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die here. Um, so I left and I started doing other contracts in, in other places. In fact, I went to Libya, believe it or not. And uh, the alcohol was still there. So until I dealt with that problem, it wasn't, my life wasn't going to get any better, I didn't think. You have been dry for how long? 13 years, yeah, I was, I was doing a job in uh, Central Africa and uh, <laughs> I took a job in Central Africa and, and my wife said to me, uh, you know, you ought to stop sending me really stupid emails that you obviously are only writing with your index finger and the one eye you can focus through um, or you don't come home. And uh, so I sort of thought, you know, what a, you know, I'll have a drink and think about that. Didn't take it seriously. And then uh, when... Everyone flew out. Uh, we all flew out of Kenya. I was the only idiot standing at the airport by myself. And I sort of thought, well, you know, I'd better sort my life out. I had two choices. You know, I can stay in Africa and carry on drinking and just start all over again. Or take it seriously and, and sort this problem out. Because, you know, I, I knew it was a problem. And so I, I did that. And uh, I, found, I found something that inspired me to stop drinking. And once I had found that... Uh, that thing, I stopped immediately that day, and I haven't touched the drop of alcohol since. What was that thing that you found? It was found? a book. Oh. It was a book. It was called Chantaram, a fantastic book. And the message in it that I received was basically very similar to him. He had found himself in a very bad situation, a situation he put himself in. Uh, he ended up in India. An opportunity came along where he could see that he could fix his problem. He was smart enough to, to see it. He was smart enough to to take it, and he was just smart enough to sort of action it. And so I took that as, okay, here's, here's the slap in the, you know, here's the kick in the balls you need to uh, sort your drinking out. And I followed those, I saw the, the opportunity, I took the opportunity, and I haven't drunk since. So I was I was like, wow, you know, it was, mm. it was an eye-opener for me. It really changed my life. Do you still suffer from, what well, I suppose it is PTSD, isn't it? You know, the loud noises and the, the sleeping. Yeah. You do. Uh, I do. I do. Um, I, I live not in New Zealand. I live uh, way up on a hill. I have no neighbours. I have dogs who sometimes trigger it with their goddamn barking. Um, I have very short tolerances for loud noises. I, do not, I don't like people uh, for too long. I play golf and I have some very good buddies who understand my situation. So uh, we play golf. We have a, I have an air bear zero alcohol and then I go home and they're, they're happy with their, their use to that. 
I don't travel so much anymore. I've, I've traveled so extensively over my life that airplanes and airports don't really, uh, not, I'd sooner stay away from them. Um, you know, writing the book, uh, I, I did it. A friend of mine uh, who was a very well-known Oscar-winning writer said, you know, write the book. It'll help you with, uh, you know, your problems. It's, it's cathartic and you can deal with them. And uh, That was Mark Bowl, right? Was that Mark Bowl? Yes, yeah, Mark. That's right, yeah, Mark Bowl. And so I, I wrote down, I didn't think I had anything to write. And then everything started to flow. And he was right. I mean, the first, I would say, draft, which was 250,000 words, was massive. <laughs> uh, I, felt, I felt really good. But as I'd write, I'd, I'd be stepping away. I'd be crying. I'd be sort of like angry. And then um, when I finished it, uh, Damien Lewis, who's you know, a fantastic author himself, and he said he'd ghostwrite it for me. He cut it down to the bare bones. But in all honesty, after the fifth time I had to re read this damn thing <laughs> for the different edits, I was sick of it. And it basically made everything come back to square one. So first time you write down your problems, leave it alone or don't write it at all. And you can quite healthily you know, just sort of like bury them and not think about them. But the more I read it, the more I was like going, oh, my God, this is this is not helping. But it's, it's done now. It's published and it's out. I haven't read I haven't read it in book form. Um, it's sitting on my uh, on my book cabinet now because I've read it so many times. I don't want to go down that road again. And there are there are parts of it that I, I still that's that still triggers me. Mm. Um, but I hope that those who do read it will see that it's it's more than just a, it's not a shoot 'em up book at all. I don't believe um, it's an honest account of what we did and what I did over there and the struggles I went through and then what I did to get through them. At, um, in the end um so it's a bit more than just uh, a war book i think oh totally um, absolutely i can say that you know having having read it uh it's a brilliant book and it's it's very raw and it's very real but um we get a really amazing sense of who you are and also you know how you do question question the job and and again you know the the morality of war i will tell you barry that you know there's there's been a lot of people um have said on various groups on uh facebook and things that um it's finally uh, finally, someone is telling their story. Uh, so often veterans take their stories to the grave and never really share. And so they're really applauding you, especially those within the, um, well, within the military um, fraternity, former SAS people uh, are applauding you and they're all looking forward to reading it. Yeah, thank you. And, and thanks to them. And I, I, I agree. PTSD doesn't have that stigma it used to. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a known thing. It's acceptable. People go through it. And for those of us in the military, those of us in private contracting, went through it. You're going to be tarnished with it one way or another, whether you sort of, and you know it. I was going to say whether you know it or not, but you do know it. You know that different things will trigger you, um, and how you deal with them. You know, and a lot of time in the military, it's through alcohol, uh, and you know, which is fine. It works for for about two hours or three hours, and and then, but it's there again the next day. Like, you, you know, you thought I was going to go away. Well, I'm not. But it, it, alcohol is so destructive, and it, it, it doesn't fix it. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad about that, and I, I hope more people do tell their stories or come out. And it's not about telling stories. It's about it's about emptying the pressure cooker or releasing the pressure because when you try and hold it all in, it's, it's going to come out eventually. 
you know, and it's going to come out in, in perhaps a violent way or a bad way, or whatever, but it's going to come out generally in a, in a destructive way. So release the pressure, you know, tell your stories, write them down. You don't have to publish them. You can just write them down and put them away or, or, or tear it up. But you've got to release the pressure somehow. And I hope my book helps people realize that uh, I was able to do it. And if anybody knows me from my military days, you know, with the Jaguar Christ, if he can do it, I mean, I can do it. Well, I mean, you've certainly uh, paid the price and you continue to pay the price for the career that you've you've chosen, you've had. Uh, knowing all of this and what you've experienced and what you've seen, would you change anything? No, no, no. I wouldn't change a thing. Um, it's it's put me where I am. It's it's made me who I am. Plus, you know, the people around me who supported me make you who you are. You know who your true friends are. I mean, I can count mine on, on one hand. No, I wouldn't change at all. I, I I've I joined the SAS, which is you can't get any better than that in, in the military. I've been in conflict zones and I've put those skills to test and I've survived. I've never lost. A client. I've never lost uh, anyone working for me. Um, I still have great relationships with the guys who work with me all in the States. Uh, we catch up whenever we can. I'm proud to have joined and, and been in Blackwater. It was perhaps the most high profile, you know, private security company out there. And I know we were tarnished heavily, particularly because it was Republican, it was Navy SEAL, it was whatever you want to call it. People didn't like us. Probably the same people who thought the, the invasion was a good idea until they saw you know, that it wasn't. And I, I now have a, a beautiful uh, life. I, you know, everything's worked out for me and I wouldn't change a thing. What about the people of Iraq? Is there anything that you would say to them? Yeah, I really feel for the people of Iraq, in fact, and I, and I write a dedication about that in the book. Um, and I take I take a, a couple of sentences out of Shantaram. It's about forgiveness. I do feel sorry for them and uh, I hope that they find the peace that they deserve. Um, that they have had nothing but a horrible existence, you know, ever since the end of Saddam and afterwards. You know, it was it was basically under control with Saddam. Funnily enough, and we used to say that all the time. I mean, things weren't as bad when Saddam was was in charge. He was a dictator, sure, but he was America's dictator. You know, he, he fought against the Iranians. He kept the he, there was no terrorism in Iraq. Yeah, he he did some horrible things, and perhaps he had to go. Because of that, but then the people who invaded Iraq, they also did horrible things. You know, whether that be in um, Washington or 10 Downing Street. I mean, they're war criminals, and, and it was the poor Iraqi people on the ground who paid the price. Because the people in charge never paid the price. It was our four guys in Blackwater who went to prison before they were pardoned. They paid the price. You know, it's, it's Julian Assange who's getting extradited to uh, the U.S. He's paying the price. But these people who started it, they don't pay the price. And, and the people of Iraq, they are the main payers of the price for over 25, nearly 30 years now. And that was SAS veteran Barry Wright.